iTalk Audio is proudly sponsored by Hogstrike USA. Hogstrike is an industry leader in surgical microscopes. A brilliant fusing of Swiss optics, German engineering, and years of experience allow them to produce surgical microscopes, slit lamps, and ophthalmic diagnostics that exceed ophthalmic surgery needs and set future standards for optics, engineering, ergonomics, and imaging. Learn how you can work more efficiently and effectively with Hogstrike at hsmicroscopes.com. Welcome once again to iTalk Audio. Uh, my name is Daryl, your lovely host, and once again you are listening to the podcast dedicated to the eye care industries and the trials and tribulations thereof. I have a brilliant guest on today, someone I've known for a little while, worked with, and I'm super excited to have Dr. Mark Vidal on. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you very much, and uh, how are you? I am very well, very well indeed considering everything that's going on, something I'm sure you and I are going to touch on here very shortly. But before we do, uh, give everybody just a brief background on who you are, um, how long you've been in the eye care industry, things like that. So for those that are not familiar with you, they can at least have a bit of your background. Sure, sure. I, um, uh, I was born in Texas, uh, grew up in Colorado where I learned to ski. Uh, that's still one of my passions. Then uh, moved back to Houston and uh, stayed in Houston for high school and then for college. I went to Rice University and then uh, med school at UT Southwestern in Dallas. Back to Houston for uh, fellow, a re residency and fellowship at UT Herman and then Houston Eye Associates with Dr. Jeffrey Lanier. Uh, so I did my fellowship in uh, cornea and external disease. Uh, I tell everybody... Uh, in short, I'm the red eye and pus guy. Uh, that's, I do all the stuff that the other people don't like to do. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so, like I mentioned, you and I have worked together in the past when I used to work for a marketing company, and I got to know you a little bit. Um, and one of the things that I was always impressed by is your ability to kind of cut through things and see things for what they are, how to look towards the future, how not to overreact to things, but also how not to underreact to things. And we've had some guests on talking about during these times of COVID how that's affected their practices, like with the, the real uh, large rise with, with telehealth, telemedicine. Um, but I thought you would have a great perspective to talk about walking us through your much larger practice and how you folks started to adapt to that, how you have completely embraced and now fully adapted, and what you think that's going to be like moving forward. So let's just start with the, the real simple basics things. You and your family are doing well, I assume. Yes, yes, we're um, doing great, and uh, my wife and kids are adapting very well. We're uh, learning to be closer here at home and <laughs> yes. uh, playing some card games like spades and <laughs> monopoly and stuff like that. <laughs> it's been good. <laughs> nice. Um, and uh, oh. in, ter in, in terms of the practice, uh, sorry, I, uh, in terms of the practice, um, I think one of the first thing you, things your listeners may be interested, as you mentioned, Houston Eye Associates is particularly large. Uh, at least at one point, we were the largest private practice group in the country. I don't know if that's still the case or not. But we have about, we have 49 MDs, 15 ODs, so about 64 uh, doctors total. Um, we span about, in Houston, north to west, about an hour and a half, and left to right, about 
uh, or east to west, I should say, about an hour. Um, we have 25 locations and 10 opticals. So we're really big, um, and that can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing sometimes. Sure. Uh, I would imagine, you know, it's as typically tends to be the case, the larger you get, there's more bureaucracy that kind of gets built on it, so it might be a little bit slower to, to move and adapt to things. However, that, like you mentioned, can also be a good thing because you can have a lot more input in how things can work and should work. Uh, I know in the past you were actually the president of um, Houston Eye Associates. We'll kind of touch on that here in a little bit. But when that first, when everything first started to hit, how did you all come together and kind of decide what to do? I mean, there, there were probably things mandated by the governor, um, but how did you all kind of come to realize what you needed to do initially, being such a large organization? Well, we were looking uh, first somewhat externally. We wanted to kind of understand what the situation was. So I think us, just like everyone else, uh, went information gathering. You know, we wanted to understand, you know, what was happening, how quickly might this affect the U.S., how fast might it spread, um, how dangerous is this virus. Um, all of those things were running through everyone's mind around that time. Uh, one of the first and foremost things we wanted to do was make sure that our patients were safe, make sure that our team was safe, our, our administrative team, our, our clinical staff, all the people that were working in the ORs. So we did look to uh, recommendations from the governor. We looked to, out to recommendations from the American Academy of Ophthalmology. And at first, those guidelines were somewhat rough, and, but over time, they, they gradually got refined. So we, we ended up developing a policy uh, to screen patients if we could, anybody that was calling over the phone, to screen them over the phone about if they'd had any recent travel, they were feeling sick, some of those basic questions that we all know now. Sure. And then as those patients came into the, to the uh, clinic, we advised them to not bring any more people that were needed to support them during their visit, and we were checking, began checking temperatures. And that's something we started very early and have continued uh, to now uh, to continue to try to pick up anybody who may be exhibiting those early symptoms. And I'm assuming um, by temperatures you're talking both patients as well as staff. Correct. Yeah. All of our staff, um, myself, all of our doctors are checked as we uh, walk into the building. And so with a larger organization like that, as you see things start to unfold, I'm, I'm assuming in Texas at some point they said, okay, you know, it, you can't see patients anymore unless it's an absolute emergency. So how did that work? Because now you had a lot of people you know, in, in your case, quite a significant number of people who wanted to be able to help and do their jobs but were, were physically being prevented from doing that. How did you kind of address that initially? And then as you kind of settled in, how did that work from there? Well, again, being a large practice, that was one of the things that, um, that kind of flummoxed us a little, a little bit is that we had different people were getting different bits of information. Sure, there was a lot of different disinformation out there. Sources. Sorry. So the question came, well, do we need to close completely right away or not? Some doctors wanted to continue to work through it. Other doctors didn't. Um, but we, you know, very quickly tried to bring that together to one safe and kind of mainstream approach. Um, 
you know, but as we started, as we started to work, um, we had to, we had to choose. And when it came down to, you know, by April, uh, we had pretty much decided that we were going to close everything except non-essential services. Sure. Um, my clinic, we already have a, somewhat of an online presence and do a fairly good job through our EMR and some add-ons to our EMR to be able to um, secure message patients. So we were, read, we were already set up to be able to contact our patients and have our patients contact us about any acute things that were going on with their eyes and get them information that if this was not an acute problem, that they should hold off and we could plan to reschedule based on what happened with this whole situation. Sure. And so given that, given that we went down to roughly seeing patients um, in a live, on a live basis in live clinic uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays is what my particular practice did. Mm -hmm. And then Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we were seeing um, telehealth patients. So we'd see patients uh, over the phone on a virtual um, connection, uh, video conference. And if they then had a problem, we would either see them that next day or we would see them, we would make uh, appointments for severe things uh, right around midday sometime. And that's, um, we talked about this on a previous podcast. We really kind of dive deep into the telehealth. We had, um, we were fortunate enough to have Dr. Blake Williamson from um, down in Louisiana come on and talk about how his practice was an early adopter of that. With the, the inability to see patients on a regular basis like you would like, did your practice fully embrace telehealth? Were you, was the structure in place where you could kind of just launch and switch over to that, or was that an adjustment period for you at all? We, again, because the practice is large, we had the gamut. So we have doctors young to old, technology savvy to not, um, and everything in between. So my particular practice, we launched right into it. It was literally me making a, a phone call to IT saying, hey, I need to make sure all my staff can make a remote phone call um, to our patients safely, um, and patients can get in touch with us. They flipped some switches, turned some dials for us, <laughs> and we were set to go. And, and by you know, maybe a day or two, we were ready to go, and we were seeing telehealth patients. Some of the other doctors wanted to kind of tiptoe into it so they didn't uh, move into something like that as quickly. And some of the doctors actually felt like it wasn't going to be as helpful to them, particularly some, some of our retina colleagues would say that although telehealth visits can uh, to some degree be helpful, they can't see the retina, they can't do a ret they can't do a anti-VEGF injection <laughs> right. over a video conference. Right. So, um, because of that and all the different subspecialties that we have represented, there was a, a wide variance in where some doctors converted their whole practice over to telehealth very quickly and others uh, felt like they either needed to continue to see patients or just took time off, basically shut their clinic down and let the other doctors cover for any emergencies. Right. Unfortunately, even though it's getting better and better, and a lot has been invested in it right now, telehealth is still not at a place where it can you can do your practice 100% telehealth. Obviously, there are certain specialties and things where you physically still need to be there. Plus, I think the you know the the ability for the doctor and the patient to actually connect eye to eye in the same room. I don't think that's ever going to go away. 
But as this has developed and you've had to kind of rely on that more and more as a technology, have others in the practice kind of come around and started to embrace it? And has it become a function in the in the practice overall that is going to just stick around forever and become just part of daily routine, do you think? Um, well, to that, to that last question, I would hope so. Um, I really would like to see our availability to conference with a patient uh, over the phone um, and check them or over a video conference on easy, simple things that can be easily ha um, uh, handled that way. Sure. Uh, it's it's very it's very it makes us more efficient. It makes the patients happier because if they're going to have to wait or if I'm running behind, the patient would much rather be sitting in front of their television at home or at work um, with me being a few minutes late to their appointment uh, than waiting in the waiting room. Absolutely, uh, they're also safer in those kinds of environments in this kind of situation so there's some there's some strict advantages to the patient right off the bat right and then for the doctors as well um, it, it, it makes it makes us more efficient so we can get through more patients in a shorter period of time with everybody still being uh, taken care of on an individual basis that's one of the things that I've always admired about the medical profession overall is that it, while it's at times it can be very stubborn it is also incredibly adaptive and I've been very proud of the things that I've heard during this time of doctors being able to, for their patients' benefit, be able to adapt and still be able to provide the absolute best care that they can, rather than, in some professions, you know, just, just wiping their hands and be like, oh, there's nothing we can do right now. We'll have to wait till everything pa passes. Seeing the medical profession really try to embrace and still provide the highest quality care that they can to their patients has been truly inspiring. I, I really do believe that. And I'm glad that, that places like yours have, have embraced that and been able to continue that. Have you felt during, during this time as people are starting to adapt and figure out new ways to, to try to provide the best care, have you felt that kind of communal camaraderie that, that kind of happens? Uh, yeah, I, I really think that there was a lot of, there's been a lot of uh, community between uh, practitioners, sure. both within our practice and outside of our practice, that, hey, I've got this situation, um, for whatever reason, something's not working properly for us, can you handle this for us? Um, and that's been really good. I think I'm, I'm proud of our, of our ophthalmology community um, and just our medical community in general in Houston um, has really rose to the challenge to make sure that the patients that need care are getting their care quickly and with as least disruption as possible. And have you found that the patients are very similar to that, that they're willing to adapt? And like, like you mentioned, um, telehealth does end up being a little bit more convenient for them to do, just do a quick 10, 15 minute video call as opposed to wait in the, the, off, the office lobby for you know two to three hours, however long it would take. Have you noticed that the patients are not necessarily as, for lack of a better term, bitchy, but more embracing of like, absolutely, what can I do? What do I need to do to help this situation as well? I, I've been incredibly surprised by how well um, patients have adapted and accepted uh, telehealth visits. Um, I really didn't expect that. I was thinking that it would be something that I would have to encourage people to do, but I think 
I think this is one of the way one, and one of the areas where medicine may be a little bit restricted, not not so much behind because we don't want to do it, but restricted by the issues of our payers that the payers won't pay us. For yeah. It. If we're allowed, once the payers said, "Hey, we will pay for telehealth visits," doctors jumped all over it because mm-hmm. they know that patients are on their phones, they're on social media, they're doing video conferencing all the time anyway. So it was just a natural progression. Once we knew that we could actually be reimbursed for it and um, the payers would not say or we didn't have to worry about uh, malpractice issues and things like that, those barriers, once they were knocked down, we went, we went right into it. Yep. That, that's been a very common complaint, particularly initially, is that, you know, it, it took a little while for insurance companies, the payers, to actually pony up and say, oh, no, this is valid. Absolutely, we'll go ahead and, and pay for that. Because as I've mentioned many times on this podcast, you know, being a doctor, while a noble pursuit, it is also, you know, a livelihood. It's how folks make their money. So you do have to get paid in order to be able to continue to be able to provide the care that you'd like to be able to provide. And I think sometimes people, I think often people end up forgetting forgetting that aspect of it. So as this is, right. the whole uh, pandemic has progressed and we obviously still haven't turned that, that corner that we need yet, has has life and the function of the the practice overall Houston Eye Associates has that started to have a nice gel and flow to it have there been more bumps along the road as you still try to figure out how to perform this better I think day by day it's getting easier um, because all of us you know as as a unit the the doctors the patients the practice family members all of that are are starting to understand this this kind of new normal. Yes. Um, just something as simple as wearing a mask. You know, can you hear someone? How well can you breathe with the mask on? Yeah, right. <laughs> all of those, all those little things. You know, um, you, people are starting to get used to, and and because of that, things have gotten a little bit easier and feel a little bit more normal. Texas was one of the earlier states to kind of start opening up. We didn't really know if that was good or bad, but um, it's so far seems to be working out okay, at least from us in terms of the practice. And the the normal levels of communication and you know the day to day functions of running a practice as large as yours, have though have the communications and the daily procedures, I guess for lack of a better term, have those gotten better? Stayed essentially the same? Gotten a little bit worse because not everybody's able to see each other on as much as on as much. I guess what I'm trying to get at is as the practice itself is moving through this, not individual doctors or patients, but the practice as, as a whole, have there been hiccups and bumps to running the practice that have happened that you've had to uh, adapt to as well? Uh, I would say yes and no. Being, again, being a, a very large practice, this is an issue, the, the issue of communication right. has been an issue that has been uh, a pet project of mine for a very long time, for years. So in some ways, both our IT staff, our administration, myself, some of, some of our physician leaders have pushed for better transparency in the practice and better communication in the practice. And so we have had many different trials, some worked, some didn't, in terms of being able to get the word out on all types of different things. How do we get 
49 doctors to all vote within the time before the vote expires. Right. Sure. Um, how do we make sure that everyone has received the email um, and that the email goes to, to the doctor specifically if it's a confidential matter rather than going to their staff offices? Right. Um, and then once we achieve something like that, which, which we have, I mean, that's, that's a lot of corporate cultures have, have done that, then how do you then make sure that you're not over inundating the doctors with too much communication so they can parse out the things that are really important from the things that are just notification, simple notifications? Um, these are, have all been really difficult. And, and then magnify that by the staff. We have... Uh, approximately 650 staff members wow. um, in our practice. So when that came up, we had to deal with, okay, overhead is high, overhead's about to get higher, patient census is going down, you know, how are we going to handle this? Are we going to do, are we going to do furloughs? Are we going to have to lay people off? Um, are we going to extend uh, PTO? All of these were discussions we had to have. We had to have these discussions quickly and um, they were sensitive, and we had to learn very quickly how to do all of that over teleconferences like everyone else was. Sure, and I'm sure there was probably a stumbling block or two along the way, and once you realized that maybe you'd made a decision that wasn't working, how quickly were you able to assess that and then, uh, and then kind of come back and say, okay, we went the wrong direction, let's, let's do it this way instead. And I, and I ask for those that might still be struggling with how to do some of these and implement some of these decisions, I ask on their benefits so that they, they might be able to learn a better way or a more productive way to, to make some of these decisions. Well, with our, with our practice, being the size that it is, we have a fairly large administrative staff. Um, we had gone, we've recently gone over, gone through an administrative, a relatively large administrative turnover, um, completely separate from anything going on with COVID. It just happened to happen right before that. Oh. Um, because of that, we were starting to do um, kind of uh, an inward look and reorganization. How are we going to look at our organizational chart, reorganize, how are we going to um, look at our bylaws, look at all of our physician rules and policies, make sure everything's up to date. We had a new administration that came in and started working on all that stuff. We were, we're in the range of halfway to three-fourths of the way through some of that stuff when COVID happened. So the ability to reorganize, uh, we were already in the in the motions of going through that yeah i was going to say that so sounds that, that that sounds kind of fortuitous that you were actually going through it already rather than have to like to completely reinvent the wheel you were already starting down that path so in a way that was kind of lucky right it was it really was and i think we were also lucky to have a new administrative staff that um, was very, very good at communicating with, and have, has been very good at communicating with the doctors um, and being sensitive to all those individual issues that come with the location, the different patient population in these different areas that we're working in, the different subspecialty needs. Um, all of those things, um, I think they've done a really great job at. It's been uh, difficult nonetheless. Um, and, you know, not everybody is happy with every decision, but 
overall, looking at the entire picture, I think they've done a fantastic job. And, and that's where I would say, you know, as, we were ta as you had mentioned before, how do other practices deal with this? It's different for us being so large. We have dedicated staff that are full-time thinking nothing about these types of issues. Right. So it, it makes it somewhat easier because I can, I can put more focus in making sure my patients are taken care of and figuring out how we're going to deal with PTO I can let somebody else do that. Right. That makes perfect sense. Um, that's one of the benefits of working for a larger practice. A lot of uh, some of the folks that I've spoken to, you know, this has been a very adaptive period where um, a lot of people have actually been trying to find the positive in this, much like you were saying, you know, a new staff coming in right before this happened and being able to, to have a staff that was quickly able to adapt was a good thing for you. Other practices have also looked at this because they've had to go back and look at how almost everything was done, like literally start from scratch, not the, 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 like the eye care itself. That's what the doctors are very, very good at. But looking at the running of a practice, what's efficient, what can we do to adapt, do, you know, how much do we actually get out of our marketing efforts, just as an easy example? Should we stop marketing? Should we continue? Being able to look at all of those things, and in a lot of cases having the downtime to be able to do that, has been, I think, incredible for a lot of practices because the things that you don't pay attention to for a long time tend to kind of build build up and build up and then they become a mountain that you have to deal with suddenly because something broke it doesn't sound like that was necessarily the case for you guys which is a really good thing yeah you're you're right uh, you know borrowing from Stephen Covey I, I tell everybody that we spent our time sharpening the saw so <laughs> sure. I told all of my <laughs> I told all of my um, my OAs and my secretaries hey find something to read and learn something new. If there's something that we've been doing that you don't quite understand, let me know, and we'll do a Zoom conference, and I'll explain to you what's the difference between aphakic PKP and pseudophakic PKP. Sure. Um, you know, when are we going to suture in a lens, and when are we going to the sulcus? You know, I, so we did we did a lot of that in my practice. Um, I went through and upgraded my. Um, treatment plans, so my kind of my automatic treatment plans, making sure that those were well polished. Um, I went out and looked for uh, new ways to look at my outcomes for surgery. So um, we uh, started using, um, or started with a trial anyway, of Zeiss Veracity so that we could uh, look at our cataract outcomes. So um, we, we really spent some time going through and just finding things that were those straggling ends, those things that kind of bothered you during the day that you never really had time to deal with and trying to attack those things and, um, you know, use the time productively. Brilliant. Um, all right. So as we start to wind down a little bit, I don't know the state of Texas currently. Are you folks able to see patients on a regular basis now or are you still limited in, the, in what you can do and see? Uh, we're still somewhat limited. We still have, we're, you know, in terms of social distancing, limits the number of people that can be in the waiting room at a time. Sure. At, at a time. Um, but we're ramping up, and, and we were surprised. We had done some forecasting, expecting to be probably in the range of maybe 50% or so. And recently some numbers came out that showed that we're at about 80%. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Uh, where we were 
uh, pre, pre-COVID. So we're doing pretty well. Um, it's kind of pushed us to move a little faster. Sure. <laughs> um, to be able to see our patients, to be more efficient with everything so we can get people in and out because we have less, just less space for people to be in the building. You know, we removed chairs so people are six feet apart and all those kind of things, and um, that means that people are standing, and when they're standing, they want, they want uh, something to happen right away. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it gets people in and out quicker. Yeah. All right. So any, any kind of lessons or advice that you'd like to give for folks, practices, doctors that might be kind of stumbling through as things start to reopen? Any lessons you've learned, advice you want to give to them as, they, as things start to get back on track? Um, one of the things that I would say, and I would say, you know, a lot of experienced ophthalmologists probably know this already, people who are earlier out, um, I would say something that Dr. Lanier taught to me, my preceptor, was that things happen in cycles. Things will go up, things will get better, things will get worse, good things will happen, bad things will happen. Um, you know, the good thing is that there's always a tomorrow, and, um, you know, there's going to be... Uh, ebbs and flows of what we go through, and this is not going to be the end. For our generations that are dealing with this type of thing with COVID right now, um, we haven't lived through something this dramatic that affects the entire globe. Um, people who've lived through you know, world wars and polio and things like that have had these kind of experiences, and so this is news to a lot of people. But the world, the U.S., medical practices and medicine in general has gotten through this and uh it'll happen again brilliant words of wisdom as always sir you did not disappoint i brought you on for a reason and you absolutely did everything i was hoping that you would do if you have any final thoughts or words that you'd like to to say and share by all means feel free um i don't i don't think so i i appreciate being on um i appreciate what you're doing uh, this community and everything that, that you're trying to develop over time with your podcast uh, is a fantastic thing, and I wish you all the best best of luck. Well, thank you very much, sir. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on. I wish you, your family, your practice, and your patients all the best. And without further ado, thank you all very much, and until next time. iTalk Audio is sponsored by Curious Conversations Marketing. Curious Conversations Marketing believes in the power of story. They help businesses just like yours tell their story in their way with their words. Curious Conversations uses the digital world to tell the story of your business. From the people to the product, let Curious Conversations assist you in telling the story of your business. Focused in the digital realm, from social media, reviews, and reputation management, an overall online presence, to creating, recording, and hosting podcasts just like this one. Learn more at CuriousConversationsMarketing.com.